welcome to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. My name is Ben Huber, and today we are sitting down with Marie Harf. Marie is currently a Fox News contributor. Previously, she served as a spokesperson for the State Department and for Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. We spoke about the state of American foreign policy, the Iran nuclear deal, and America's place in the world in the age of Trump. Please enjoy, and don't forget to subscribe for more great content. Thanks. Greetings, and welcome to another edition of the GPPR podcast. I'm Disraeli Smith, our senior interview editor. I'm here with Ben Huber, and today uh, we have Marie Hoff, uh, who is amazing. Oh, uh, you're very nice. We'll so, see how the interview goes. <laughs> <laughs> so how about we just start with something light? Uh, we want to know the best school in the country, Indiana, UVA, or Georgetown. Oh, well, if we're talking college football, I'm going to say Ohio State. <laughs> okay. That's, uh, where I'm, that's where I grew up in Columbus, and my dad taught there. Um, but I love I love um, Indiana and UVA and Georgetown, all for different reasons. I actually spent a summer at Georgetown in college. Okay. So this is not my first time on campus. Um, a summer, I, I stayed in the apartments right across from the main entrance, and so I've always had a special place in my heart for Georgetown. They're all great schools. And for basketball, obviously Georgetown. You're supposed to pick. You're going to pick yeah. Georgetown over Indiana. I know. Well, you know, I was there when Bobby Knight got fired at Indiana, which okay. is probably ancient history to most people. Um, but I actually wrote the story in the student newspaper on the front page about Knight getting fired, and I have it framed in my apartment. So. Wow. I know. Lots of college sports happening on this podcast so far. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and the experience you've had on campus the second time on campus thus far and where we're going to get back out of you in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I grew up in a tiny town outside of Columbus, Ohio. Um, my dad taught at Ohio State and my mom was an environmental activist. So I, from a very young age, wanted to do policy, politics, or, um, international issues, and figure out how that all works. So about Almost 12 years ago, I came to D.C., and I was a CIA officer for the first six. I was an analyst working on Middle East issues, and then I got my first job doing media as the spokesperson for the agency. Uh, after that, I left and went to work for Barack Obama on his 2012 re-election campaign, where I ran foreign policy and national security uh, issues, and thankfully we won. Uh, it's much better to work on a winning campaign than a losing one. But they're all amazing to work on, amazing experiences. And then I went to work for John Kerry for four years as, as when he was Secretary of State. So I was involved in everything from the Iran nuclear negotiations to, uh, you know, the UN General Assembly every year. I did the daily press briefing for several years, and I served as his senior advisor on communications issues. And since January, I have been at Fox News trying to bring the Democratic Party's message to Fox's millions and millions of viewers, which has been incredibly interesting and I think is important to, to do. Uh, and in terms of Georgetown, so my whole mission since I've come to D.C. was trying to uh, explain or help the American people understand why foreign policy really matters to them. Right? There's this idea that American voters don't really care about what happens overseas, and that um, politics really stops at the water's edge. And I don't think that that's true on either side of the aisle. So I really have enjoyed so far in my time here, a lot of school foreign service kids, students, I shouldn't say kids, they're not all kids, um, <laughs> makes, me feel, makes me feel old, um, are coming to discussions to talk about the politics of foreign policy, which is really interesting because in, 
in classes of international relations, you don't get a lot of that. I didn't in graduate school or undergrad. And the kids who are studying public policy uh, or politics and, and how voters um, behave are starting to think more about foreign policy. So this is my whole mission in life is to bring the two together. And I think that in this crazy polarized place our country's in today, um, college campuses are actually one place where people who disagree with each other can talk. And I think that's really valuable. And just personally, it's nice to be around people who want to have those discussions because most of DC doesn't want to have those discussions. <laughs> right. That's definitely true. Yeah. Um, so speaking of international affairs and foreign policy being important, how did you get interested in them originally? So my dad was a Soviet specialist. He speaks Russian and he taught at Ohio State. He taught Soviet studies, international relations. So as a, from the time I was six months old, I was traveling with him overseas, really exposed me to the wider world. And I think it was just like I had no choice um, but to be interested. And then the real catalyst for me professionally was my junior year of college, um, first semester of the 9-11 attacks happened. And I think for me that was very much the moment when I knew I wanted to work in the national security foreign policy space because it was such a defining moment in our country, certainly, um, for me personally. Uh, and so that was the moment when I really started focusing on the Middle East and terrorism and a whole host of issues that are related and I think put me on the course that's taken me to where I am today. Yeah, so these last nine months obviously have been... Exhausting. Interesting, <laughs> let's put it this way. Uh, we've seen a lot of, you know, peeling back of the Obama legacy, both domestically and more mm -hmm. from a foreign policy perspective. You know, the U.S. has become more isolationist, like this is the Monroe Doctrine all over again. You know, what danger do you see in the president's approach and how marginalized Foggy Bottom has become? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, you know, the idea that America leads the world and that we do so based on both our values and our interests is one that has really been at the center of both parties' foreign policy for decades. And that we look at interests in terms of where our national security and economic interests lie and our values in terms of promoting human rights and democracy and all of those related issues. And what's been troubling to me, I think, and to a lot of people, is that President Trump seems to view foreign policy more through a business lens in terms of there being winners and losers and almost like a balance sheet. So, for example, on something like the climate agreement, you know, we think it was in America's interest because everybody plays a role, everybody makes sacrifices, everybody contributes for the greater good. Because I believe there are things in this world that are a greater good. Um, he didn't seem to like it and he talked about it in terms of America needs to win. You know, and in, in, in international relations and negotiation, there's, unless we have all out war, right? There's very infrequently a winner and a loser per se. Right. In the Iran nuclear agreement, both sides had to get something in order to say yes, unless you were willing to sort of bomb Iran into capitulation. Negotiations are essentially a give and take. It's not a winner versus loser thing situation. So the outcome of that, I think, is a marginalization of diplomacy, which senior military leaders will tell you their job is harder when diplomacy isn't strong because war is the failure of diplomacy. And 
most military leaders having lived through wars don't want to go to them unless they go fight them unless they absolutely have to. So I think there's a sense, I talked to my former colleagues at the State Department who feel like diplomacy isn't even seen as an important tool of American power. And that that's reckless because I don't think anyone in this country is really looking to get involved in more conflicts overseas or just send more American men and women in uniform overseas to fight in conflicts. Um, and that's really disturbing to people. And so I think you see some folks in the administration trying to steer a better course. But the fact is that America and a lot, I mean, people are looking at the United States today and thinking, what is going on? Where is America's leadership role? Why are we leading on trade? Why aren't we leading on climate? America first feels like we're just abandoning leadership. And if we don't take that role on, China will, Russia will, or Europe will. And that certainly doesn't seem like America first to me, but I don't use the term, so <laughs> I don't get to define it, I guess. I think that the business perspective makes a lot of sense. It's a really interesting way of, of Yeah, like there, the there's winners and losers, right. and foreign policy doesn't really work that way. Yeah. And uh, so you, you broached sort of the, the topic of the day, um, which is Iran and the Iran deal. And uh, we just sort of want to know your thoughts on addition to decertify. I have so many yeah, thoughts. How much time do we have? <laughs> we have a little while. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. Continue, finish your question. No, just, uh, what, do you, what do you make of his decision and the um, accompanying speech and sort of what you, what you can uh, parse of the approach? Well, I think that for the president, it's a very emotional issue. He doesn't like Iran. He doesn't like the deal. I think in part because President Obama is the one that did it. Um, And so you have this weird situation where President Trump hates the fact that every 90 days he has to sign that Iran is complying. And everybody agrees they're complying with the nuclear deal. The intelligence community, the Israelis, the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, the Europeans, everyone agrees that they're complying, but President Trump hates having to sign that. And so you have this situation where his advisors had to devise a plan where he didn't have to sign it, and they could give lip service to getting tougher on Iran, but they don't really want to blow up the deal. Because, I mean, even Secretary Mattis testified recently, staying in the deal is in our national security interest. General Dunford did the same thing. Secretary Tillerson has said the same thing. They're trying to square circle. So the president is happy, but they don't blow up the deal. Now, I think that is concerning. I don't think you should play around with that kind of uncertainty on an international arms control agreement. And now basically they've kicked it to Congress. So Congress can do one of several things. And Congress could do a bunch of things that are really irresponsible that have the ultimate effect of either killing the deal or significantly weakening it. And I don't have any faith in the United States Congress to be responsible. I hate to say that. I'm sorry. That's very um, that's very negative. But so I think we're in a very uncertain time, and I think it's very concerning and very scary in a lot of ways. And based on the president's emotions, which I I find disturbing on a number of levels. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so maybe maybe, maybe change the topic just slightly. What was the experience working on the deal like? And uh, what's something that you wish the public understood better? Maybe it would change people's opinions about it that it seems like they don't. So I think when we um, were going through the congressional review period where Congress had to vote on the deal, how we made the case to the public and through them to Congress was to keep going back to the science behind it. 
that when you get nuclear scientists and nuclear physicists, including some people that made our own atomic weapons, they will say this is a very strong scientific deal from a technical perspective. Iran can't make a nuclear weapon with the amount of uranium they are allowed to have and the percentage to which they are allowed to enrich it. So we kept going back to that. I think that, so, so within the four corners of the deal, Iran can't get a nuclear weapon. It's all the other stuff they're doing that people find mm -hmm. concerning. And people also don't like that there was an end time frame to some of those restrictions, which is another issue. But I, what I wish people understood about the deal or understood about diplomacy in general is you don't negotiate with your friends, you negotiate with your enemies. And at some point in the last decade, I would say, diplomacy became almost like a dirty word that it was showing weakness to talk to your enemies and to make deals with them. I mean, Reagan made arms control deals with the Soviet Union. It didn't change their behavior everywhere else we hated it, but he wasn't called weak for doing that. Nixon went to China, yeah. right? So I just don't understand this idea that any talking or any agreement is capitulation, regardless of the content. And I think a lot of the criticism is just that people don't want to do a deal with Iran. Yeah. Some of it is based on substance, but a lot of it isn't. And that's a lot of this is informed by my um, experience working on it. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, from September 2013 to July of 2015, the most intense, nego I mean, every single word was fought over. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just us and the Iranians, it was the Europeans, the Chinese, and the Russians. So every single word was litigated. And this is a really hard issue for Iran. I mean, the fact is they have the ability to make nuclear grade uranium. We're never going to change that. And again, unless we invade and bomb them into submission. So the, the standard for us was how do you prevent them from being able to build a weapon? And I have never, I could not anticipate how intense these negotiations would be. And that's part of the reason why just getting rid of it because you don't like it just seems so irresponsible to me. I, it just seems stunning. Yeah, and you mentioned, like you said, it seems like diplomacy has become a bad word over the last 10 years or so. You know, how much of that was, say, pre-Obama because of President Bush and his axes of evil speech and, and those types of things where it seemed we were going to be, you know, war-ready first, you know, and diplomats second? I think that President Obama was a response to that kind of rhetoric, right? I think people, President Obama campaigned in 2007, 2008 and saying, look, I'm not scared to use force which is a thing a lot of Democrats didn't hear, by the way. We chose not to, but he did. He was like, I can be tough when I need to be, but it's not weak to talk to our enemies. What are we getting from not talking to them? Nothing, we're getting nothing. So I think Obama was a response to Bush, and I think Trump was a response to Obama. That the Republicans for eight years hammered and hammered on Barack Obama, and a lot of it was based on the shady stuff they put out there that he was a Muslim and he was from Kenya. I mean, it was, it was couched in this, he's not like us. His priorities are different. I'm putting that in air quotes. And that was code, right? right? And so then when they said, well, he's too close to Iran, he's not close enough to Israel. This was all part of a concerted narrative effort to paint talking to people as weakness. And what you get from that is President Trump. And I think that, you know, things are cyclical and maybe we'll come back to a place where um, diplomacy, you know, the United States, as strong as we are, can't just impose our will on everybody else, nor should we try. But it seems like we're in a place right now where the hard tactical work of diplomacy 
is just forfeited in the pursuit of like instantaneous rewards, whether it's tweeting or bombing. I mean, it just, it feels like we're in this cycle that's in a different place right now, which I certainly find troubling. Yeah, um, sort of moving away from the direct cycle, um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the sort of DC foreign policy elite, um, people that uh, President Trump is generally seen as a, sort of at loggerheads with. Um, and But there's a large portion of that group that people, you know, Ben Rhodes famously called the blob, um, that are also vehemently opposed to the Iran deal. So I'm kind of curious if you think that this specific meeting between where the White House stands and where a lot of foreign policy elites, you know, it sort of agree, if you think that's an aberration or if there's really a little, maybe a little less daylight between this White House and the foreign policy elite I on more issues. I think what's interesting is a lot of the Republican foreign policy elite was telling him not to pull out of the deal. No, it doesn't mean they like the deal, mm-hmm. but a lot of the foreign policy, Republican foreign policy elite um, did not think he should pull out of the deal and does not think he should. So... I actually think he's very, he's pretty isolated on this one. There's a hard right, the John Bolton wing of the party that he's tapping into, but I don't think it's uniform. Look, I think the the foreign policy elite, what, what Ben was getting at, and I'll try and rephrase it to make it, I don't know, sound a little different, but um, one of the reasons I liked, I wanted to work for Barack Obama was that he came in as a Democrat. And Democrats for years didn't want to talk about foreign policy because we were seen as weak. We were Jimmy Carter. There was a legacy we couldn't get out of. And Bill Clinton didn't really have to deal with that much foreign policy. So Barack Obama came in and said, you can be a Democrat. You can want to end wars, but you can also be tough and be smart. And he said, I'm going to end the Iraq war, but while I do that, I'm going to kill a lot more terrorists. He didn't say it in those words, but that's what he did. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of Democrats, he... Barack Obama upended the traditional democratic foreign policy is, is, you know, pacifist and all about human rights and nothing else. And the Republicans are the tough ones. And I think for a lot of us, Barack Obama upended some of that. Hillary Clinton, in some ways, tried to because she wanted to appear tough, I think, in part because she's, you know, a woman and being the first female commander in chief, he's like, you feel like you have to be. Um, so... But you can never out-tough Republicans, right? Like, we're never going to win that battle, nor should we. So so I do think the foreign policy elite is grappling with a presidency that doesn't seem to care. Most foreign policy elite think trade deals are a good thing. This president hates trade deals. They don't have a lot of impact right now. Now, I do think McMaster and Mattis talk to them, mm-hmm. and I think they're informed by them, which gives me, I don't know, some hope maybe that those views are getting represented. But I think we need to think long and hard about how as a country we do foreign policy and the elite hasn't always gotten it right. They did in Vietnam, they did in Iraq. Um, we tried to upend that. And I think we're still living through the results of that. Yeah, so real quick um, before we wrap up, you know, you talked a couple of times about trade. Um, obviously yeah. NAFTA is in the news, a lot yeah. of concern that the positions uh, the U.S. is taking, i.e. Trump and his uh, representative, uh, is taking, you know, the Canadians, the Mexicans cannot accept that in any deal or fashion. And it's just a, a path to set us up for, to walk away from NAFTA. What impact do you think that would have on the world stage and our perception um, as a global leader? Well, start at, actually don't start on the world stage, start at the American voter level. It will mean higher prices for most, for many American consumers and and a lot of American sectors, 
particularly a lot of agricultural sectors, will be hurt if we pull out of NAFTA. So a lot of the people that voted for Donald Trump will be hurt if we pull out of NAFTA. And I, I do not understand why he is insisting on, on renegotiating this, because a lot of the facts he's using just are not facts. Um, but on the world stage, this is the thing. Do we... I'll use a different example, TPP, the Trans-Pacific yep. Partnership. Donald Trump ran vehemently opposed to it, which is a very not Republican traditional point right. of view. He upended the entire conversation about trade. We pulled out a TPP. So now in our place, China is promoting their own version of TPP and they're trying to recruit countries to come into their free trade agreement. I don't, I don't know how that's in America's national security interest to have China fill a void. So, Trade, I think the president is informed by the Steve, ba this is an issue where he's very informed by the Steve Bannon worldview, I think, um, and insists on these issues to harkening back to a time period. And this also bleeds into things like coal and the Paris Climate Agreement. Like he wants to rebuild sectors of the American economy that are never going to rebuild in the same way they used to exist in today's globalized world, and he should be investing in the technologies of the future and the the industries of the future. And instead of doing that, he's like renegotiating NAFTA, pulling out of Paris, you know, getting rid of the clean coal plan, all these things that will have lasting impacts in our country that will take decades to undo. And the question is that I will leave you with on something like trade is if he pulls out a NAFTA, and some of these negative impacts come down on voters in states where people predict they will, what happens if he runs in 2020? What happens to the Republicans in 2018 if they're trying to defend a president who's cost them jobs um, or caused their prices of goods to go up? Um, there will be a point when the rubber meets the road on trade and or in states where he's promised coal jobs will come back and maybe some are trickling back, but they're never going to come back in the way they were. When some of these um, economic theories he espouses on things like trade or manufacturing come home to roost, I will be curious what the impact is come election time, which is ultimately, I think, what he cares most about. True. So just to wrap up, um, we, we have a lot of listeners who are interested in public policy for obvious reasons. Great. Uh, we're public policy students ourselves. Uh, and it is the public policy review. Uh, so what's one piece of parting wisdom you want to give to all of our listeners who will check this out? Um, we need to do better in our public policy debates. Do, do better. We need to do better. Talk to people you disagree with, not to win an argument, but actually to hear them and understand them. Um, we need to do better as a country. Issues of public policy are at root issues about people's lives. And we often lose sight of that in D.C. And that's easy to do. And we can't. And we need to do better. And you all are going to be the generation that does better. I'm sure. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, we just want to thank you uh, for the time, for sitting with us. Of course. Thank uh, you. Talking to GPPR. So. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www.gppreview.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook, GPP Review. Thank you.